0: in the World Cup? I mean, I was kind of talking about it last night with
1: some friends, like, it'll be hard for me to not watch it, but, I, I, I can't help but feel pretty gutted that really, we should be about two, three weeks out from it starting and you should be getting that excitement, like, in summer of like, building up and the fact we've got a, like, a World Cup-less summer sucks and the fact we're going to have to watch it in winter with it being dark and cold outside, let alone all the other stuff that kind of the the murkiness that's gone behind actually going where it's gone, it does. It definitely has taken
0: a big old chunk of my enthusiasm out there. Yeah, I spoke to Adam Powley, who's a professor of sports journalism in London, and I did ask him a lot of what football is is not about the ball going in the goal, it's about either the systems or the machinations behind the football. Um, so, we will talk, Tom Underhill, uh, in your visit to the football library, ostensibly to plug. Uh, A book with a brilliant title, uh, which is um, The Working Hands of a Goddess, The Tactics, Culture and Community of Atalanta. SC?
1: Uh, BC, BC. uh, Bergamaster Culture.
0: That's right, because Bergamo uh, is a place that I have never been. It's in Lombardia, which is on the kind of Milanese-Swiss border. So (laughs) Atalanta, BC has become the hipster club. Did you notice that Atalanta this year... Uh, played Bireal and Red Bull leipzig which are they're all the same club <laughs> yeah they're, they're, at various points they've all
1: been a bit of kind of like a, a the analytics community kind of darling they've been the, like they've had certain players and managers that have really um yeah caught the caught the hearts and minds of of people who like the kind of the hipster underdog i suppose
0: yes and in um Signor Gasparini, they have an Unai Emery, Jesse March, Thomas Tuchel kind of figure. So we'll get to Gasparini, about whom I know very little, but who has been in a job longer than pretty much 98% of managers in English football. I think it's at the moment it's just Gareth Ainsworth and uh, John Coleman and Simon Weaver have been in post longer uh, than Gasparini, who it is his domain. Is he... Not going to be tapped up by Milan. I know Milan have just won the league, but seeing as so many Atalanta players just go down to Milan, down or up?
1: Uh, that sort of southwesterly, yeah, about, about forty minutes southwesterly. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, would he not have been approached by AC Milan at some point?
1: Well, it's it's a bit of a story of Gasparini, really. Right? So, so your first point about how long he's been there is is kind of it's quite fascinating, really, because his career has been a, a tale of. Two very different ends of the spectrum. He's had very long stints at Genoa, so back in 2000, 2006 and 2010, he he was there for four seasons, and I think he still remains. That's the longest managerial stint in Genoa's history. He then went to Inter Milan and was there for five matches before he was sacked, and then he had two stints at Palermo, at Palermo that totaled about twelve matches and was sacked. And then he went back to general and had another four years. And now he's at Atalanta and had six years. So he doesn't really have anything in between having a long period and a remarkably short one. As for whether he'd be tapped up by Milan, well, the the fact that he was inter-manager in 2011 would probably make that pretty, pretty much untenable anyway. Um, not to mention the fact that Milan fans absolutely despise him they can't stand his character they admire his football and what he stands for as a manager and they, they appreciate that he's a, a fantastic coach and tactician but they would want to see
0: Gasparini lose wherever he went their, their hatred for him is that deep so I think uh there's no danger of him ever ever coaching the uh, yeah, that side of Milan. I see, and would that also preclude him getting the uh, national team job?
1: Potentially, yeah. I think he's such a divisive figure that unless he's managing your club at that one moment and get, and bringing success, so Atalanta fans adore him. He's got the he's got the keys to the city. He lives in the city. He he's quite Bergamasky in in how he is. His his identity, his personality is quite Bergamasky. But everywhere else around Italy, hate him. The Neapolitans hate him. Um, Fiorentina fans hate him. Uh, even some of the Genoa fans, even they brought a lot of success there. They don't like him. So I think he would just be
2: too polarizing a figure to ever kind of unify a national team. Yeah. Um, and 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 it probably is what I mean. He, he probably
1: won't go and get another high-profile job aside from Atalanta. I don't think just for that reason.
0: So he's, like Klopp, the thing that amazes me about Klopp, I've said this before, so regular listeners, I apologise to you, but Klopp, not sacked at Mainz, not sacked at Dortmund, not sacked at Liverpool. That is, um, I think, only Guardiola who wasn't sacked at Barcelona or Bayern. Gasparini hasn't, as far as I know, he hasn't won anything at Atalanta. Does that make him a kind of Pochettino figure?
1: In In a way, yes. It's a bit of an easy stick for particularly rival fans to beat the Gasparini-Atalanta era with. So they've got two Cop Italia finals in 2019 and 2021 and arguably could have won that the second one was against against Juventus and that was um, Pirlo's Juventus and really they should have won that match. Um, it kind of took um, Federico Chiesa coming on to really change the match and kind of turn the tide. They've had third place finishes. They scored 98 goals in the 2019-20 Amazing. season. Amazing. <clears throat> which Which is the most in Syria for sixty years? All the hallmarks should be that it should that a team that will go or should go down in Italian football history, but because of the lack of silverware, it probably might not. Um, And like I said, that can be a bit of a stick to beat it with. But because Atalanta are such a small team, like they when he when he took over, they had the fourteenth highest wage bill in Syria. They've won one piece of silverware in their entire. Over a hundred-year history, They'd been, they, they've been—they've won more Serie B titles than anyone else in Italy, showing that they were a perennial yo-yo team. Went down to Serie C as recently as 1980. The, all of all of this stuff that has happened is a is a, it's like dreamland. It's like a it's like a nirvana for the for the for the fans and for the, the people who run the club. Even even in the Champions League season, where they got to the quarterfinal. The, the president and owner, President Bacassi, said, "Our aim at the start of every season is to stay up. Having having kind of a tangible silverware at the end of the season, or at the end of whenever it does end this this era, doesn't quite dig in enough to what he's done, and the fact that the fans are not crying for silverware;
0: they are just enjoying this incredible ride and unexpected ride that they've that they've been on." Yeah, I mean you've written about this in the book, The Working Hands of a Goddess, which we're talking on June 8th. Uh, it won't come out until July 18th, and that is obviously pending delays. My book, which I'm not here to talk about, got delayed a couple of weeks because of supply chain issues. Uh, but yes, the story of Atalanta, and you could have picked anything, but if you are a writer going through pitch, the, uh, Paul and Jane need to be able to sell the book. Um, so you've got the Duncan Ulner cover you've got the publishing date uh i hope people read this book um because well yes because you've spent a long time on this uh you're putting your research masters to good use more on which later i do want to get the Atalanta stuff out the way but um there will be some chat about a key element of football coverage in the modern era um but the tactics the culture and the community uh are readers will be interested in have you been to bergamo i have yes i went i went over to visit um pretty much well, i would written the book it was pretty much all done so that was in uh
1: the first week of march this year and i went over for four days and uh yeah absolutely loved the place like i had a lot of kind of not preconceptions by from researching it you get a rough idea of what to expect and what people will be like but I kind of thought I owed it to myself to go over there and spend a few days and watch a match as well. Yeah, for a, for a very untouristy part of Italy, which a lot of northern Italy actually is, to be fair, um, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful place and I'd highly recommend it
0: to anyone. I've got the website up here and I, I know they are blowing their own uh, trumpet, but visit bergamo.net. Uh, what an astonishing array of stuff! They've got, there. there, the capital of culture next year. Borghama and Brescia will be the illuminated city, the Italian capital of culture. They're saying that there is a majestic castle, a romantic villa, an ancient palazzo, a wonderful theatre. The wedding of your dreams can come true. I think it looks like a fab city. Would you compare it to any English city or British city? Seems like a bit like Edinburgh.
1: I, do you know what I haven't thought of it but that there is there is definitely something in that there's something about the, the stonework and the architecture that is that is slightly like Edinburgh um, I, I also I went down I spent a day in Milan as well because I, I, it's my first time going to Italy and it, it was only a 40 minute train journey from Bergamo to, to Milan so I, I spent a day in Milan and that's impressive in it's own right cause it's just frenetic and fast and big and the scale of it's impressive but the there's something about I wouldn't call Bergamo uh, quaint, but there's, there's just a, a nice, there's a peaceful and like enjoyable pace of life there. And, and there's so much like the, the city's split into two halves. You've got the, the old town, the Chia the Chita Alta at the top of the top of the hill. That's kind of got fortified Venetian walls around it and beautiful piazzas and the cathedral and. It's, you've got panoramic views around the Lombardy plains. You can, on a clear day, you can see Milan. And then you kind of go down on the funicular railway into the kind of the lower modern city that has a wide, wide kind of dual carriageways and shopping centre. And that's where the where the stadium is. So that there's just a really nice contrast between not even just with other cities, but kind of within itself. You can do lots of different. Like contrasting things within the same city on the same day, and you can you can walk it all in about you know a few hours. It's not a huge city.
0: Yeah, I think um, that is Edinburgh. I lived there for five yeah. years. And I, I I did not leave like three square kilometers for five years. And if I did, it would be go, to go see the football or to go to Leith. But yes, Edinburgh's got an old town and a new town. Where does the football team sit in the city of Bergamo? Uh,
1: as it, as, it, as in kind of culturally
0: or yes. As in- Bergamo has been built around. I'd almost say built around Atalanta for the best part of hundred years. They, even through their darkest, the
1: darkest points of going down to Series C, there are a few match fixing scandals in the twentieth century. Obviously, the pandemic that devastated Bergamo so badly. Um, that the team has absolutely come to personify what what it means to be from that city. They're a one club city. Um, the fact that they've got the two Milanese clubs on the on the horizon means that there is a bit of a kind of a, a feeling of David against two Goliaths and the fact that those two Goliaths would come and pinch all their players back in the back in the sixties, seventies and eighties meant that there was a real harbouring of to enjoy what they had and that football wasn't always about winning trophies. It was about fostering a sense of community. I mean their 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 ultra groups were the most pretty much one of the most revered around Europe until it disbanded. And um, their main arch group disbanded last year because they would, weren't involved in nefarious activities. They wouldn't tout tickets. Any money they made would be invested back into the club or back into the community to host community events to help the homeless, to refurbish buildings. Just the kind of an all-encompassing relationship between the club and the people that lived there. Bergamaschi people are typically famed for their construction work. So, after World War Two, when Milan got devastated by bombings, it was the it was the the construction workers of Brescia and Bergamo that built the city back up. And they kind of they have a reputation for being, you know, it's it's important what they produce, not what they say. They're they're often quite flat speaking, quite straight to the point, but they can produce these incredible things, which is kind of what inspired the name of the book. Was that hard-working, tough people producing, you know, kind of beauty in architecture and in this football team. And the, in a weird kind of way, the football team has kind of reflected that. This incredible Atalanta team isn't built with a huge host of star names. It's built off players who have been rejected or look like their careers were petering out, who first and foremost work hard and, and tirelessly and play without ego. But when they come together play some of the most attractive football in Europe. And it it's kind of a spooky kind of a symbiosis between those two
0: identities. No, that's brilliant. I, I spent a week in Westphalia, which is the uh, coal and industrial part of Germany where Dortmund is. Uh, Schalke yes, right. and Dortmund. And the team that Jurgen Klopp built, also, with, uh, albeit a bit of skill with Reusch and Goethe, but yes, Kagawa and Aubameyang. Um, uh, who um, as well, Lewandowski, very hard working. Yeah. and very industrious. Um, so it, it is great. One thing that football, is, what we're going to see or you're going to see in the World Cup, if you watch it, is that teams, it's about the system and it's about setting up to defend and everyone's like everyone else. So I imagine America will be a lot like... I don't know, Senegal, which would be a lot like England, which would be a lot like Wales. Wales at a World Cup. What a shame it's going to be in 30-degree heat, which... Uh, well, Gareth Bale has uh, lived in Spain for a bit. Aaron Ramsey lived in Italy for a bit. I think they might do right. But, yeah, Kiefer Moore up front and Welsh men. Um, yes. Um, so that's, that's the World Cup. The book is The Working Hands of a Goddess about Atalanta, B.C. Now... Can you compare and contrast Gary Johnson and Gasparini? Or is that a, a step too far?
1: <laughs> Gary Johnson, as in
0: of Yeovil, of Yeovil Town fame. Yeah, my local my local team.
1: If I, I'm looking out my window right now, and I can see the Hewish Park oh. Stadium the window. So, I've never um, been. Um, I, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't add it to the list. If I, I'd probably, yeah, skip over it, but... Um, <laughs> I don't think Gasparini would probably ever have been compared to to Gary Johnson, But, though. Um, but
0: Johnson, I remember the, the, one of the saddest days at a football match I've ever seen was when Yeovil beat Watford 3-0. And it was quite clear that Gianfranco Zola's time had passed. And yes. Yeovil, Yeovil at home. And Yeovil, hard-working, decent team, but massively outperformed what they were, much like Watford at the time. Um, but Yeovil now... Have had a difficult few years. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, from I remember, I'm I'm pretty sure from that team that beat Watford
1: featured Luke Ayling. Yep. now of Leeds and Dan Byrne as well. I think oh he wow! Means, like, yeah, there was a, a few, a few, and Wayne, Wayne Hennessy, I think, was that he might have been the season before actually. But yeah, a few a few kind of guys have gone on to climb the. Climbed the ladder, but yeah, that was that was
0: certainly the that was certainly the high point, and it's been a bit of a free fall. <laughs> free fall. The regression, ability, yeah. regression to the norm. I think we can describe it as. <laughs> but what what kind of season did Yeovil just have?
1: Uh, I've, I've got to be honest. I I haven't followed any of them recently. I've been I've been so <laughs> kind of looking. I mean, my head's been so deep in Italian football, and I, I work. I do freelance work for the Premier League as well. So when I'm not writing, I've been kind of working for in English football, that um, unfortunately the, uh, the Conference League season has seemed to pass me by. So I honestly couldn't tell you how they'd, how they'd fared this
0: season. I, I should get more involved in the conference because Boreham Wood and Wheelstone are there and they're very local to me. Watford, at least we're going to win some games next year. We've got Preston, exactly. Sunderland, Wigan and Rotherham um, and lots of trips to Yorkshire and Lancashire this season to the smaller clubs. But Watford were punching above our weight. We are celebrating this month, in fact, when this goes out, 10 years of the Pozzo regime. There but for the grace of Gino Pozzo, go Watford, because we could have tumbled and tumbled and had the the disaster of what Luton had in the last 10 years, although Luton have regressed up again. The Premier League is something that you do work on. You also do the 100 and the Paralympics last year. And you're a, you're a trained journalist. So, are you trained more to look at the human interest stories or to report what you see in an objective fashion? What do you prefer doing?
1: Well, I'd it's, say it's, I, I haven't. So, my, my undergraduate degree was in geography, and I specialised in human geography from that. And the, the benefit of doing that subject is that you accumulate a huge range of perspectives and skills. That aren't particularly direct to any one field. Like you don't you don't finish a geography degree, and there's not one linear kind of path beyond that. You kind of take it and you apply it to whatever you want. And I knew that I wanted to get into into football, uh, preferably as a journalist, but just the work in football has always been my always been my dream. So kind of taking the ability to write to write essays in a in a range of manners so that could be a kind of a, a qualitative one based off human research, or it could be a quantitative one based off analyzing um, soil acidity anything like that and, and merging those two together to kind of what I hope has been to hone a style of writing whereby I use I use data and kind of qualitative uh, kind of interviewing and speaking to people and, and, and researching kind of written texts. I, I think I kind of do attribute my my own kind of journalistic style now to that and then beyond that I did a I did a research master's in research journalism which wasn't so much about training me to, to be a journalist. It was more honing my own understanding of what it means to be a journalist, than what research means within an academic, kind of looking at looking at journalism under a microscope, under an academic perspective, and pulling it apart for what it really is and you know, what, what, it, what it proposes to do. So I suppose it's a bit, I've had a bit of a, an unusual route to getting to where I, where I am now, a lot of journalists will take a journalism degree and then a journalism master's and then get a placement at a newspaper. I've done mine a slightly different way and have kind of used the, the modern means of starting your own blog and running a website and getting your own stuff out there and publicising it yourself and kind of pulling in expertise from wherever you can. I, I suppose it's just been a, a slightly different route. And I mean, I'm, I'm sat with the, the very first copy of my book next to me as I speak to you today. Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm pretty happy with with where where I am and hopefully where I'm where I'm
0: going to. I'm just annoyed because I've my coffee had errors that I didn't pick up. I spelt Chelsea Chelsea. Uh, I'm there was some <laughs> dittography, haplography. It's, it's a pain, but it'll be fixed for the e-book. And I'm recording an audio book as well. My book's about the FA Youth Cup. The Oval, I don't think, feature, alas. No, I, I, I'd be amazed if they did. I'd be amazed. If it, but look, if you read a Stephen King book. And you know you find the odds, say, say the most valuable Harry Potter first editions, the ones that have the old spelling mistake yeah. in. So that is uh, true, yes, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so your book is twelve ninety nine, isn't it? I think, and mine is sixteen ninety yes. nine. But we're on the pitch stable. It means, of course, you can buy my book half price as a pitch author. You get the author's discount. Um, but there are <laughs> phenomenal quotient of books. I think with this football library, and by the way, you do get your football library card. I don't know if you want uh, Mario Paschalic or Ilisic on the card. Do you want an Atalanta figure on your oh, uh, library card? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Duvant Zapata would be a perfect one to
0: have. <laughs> yes. Well, well, let's dip into that because I, I follow Serie A in the, I know that AC Milan have won and Fikayo Tamori. Has, uh, is going to go on the plane to Qatar with a Serie A winner's medal. Very quickly, 2016-17, Atalanta finished fourth. Apart from a 7-1, thrashing it into they were unbeaten in four months. Uh, they were seventh in 2017-18. They were third in for three seasons in a row. Two of them were Coppa Italia final defeats. Uh, they were in Europe at some point and we'll, we'll skip through those in a sec. Um, so you want Thapata. I would want Rafael Toloi, the Brazilian-born naturalised Italian who plays right back, or the Ukrainian Malinovsky, who would have had a very difficult few months.
1: Toloi's a, Toloi's a fascinating character because he, he was there beyond when Gasparini got there, and he'd always been a bit of a rash, physically quite tall, quite barrel chested and strong, preferably a right back. Um, but had a huge, huge error in him, lapse of concentration, a bit of a, bit of a disaster of a, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't go any higher than the mid table of Syria, for example. And Gasparini came in and kind of turned him into a center, like a, one of his three center backs. And, uh, he's, he's a bit of a cult hero. Now he's the club captain. His injuries have started to pile up, but he's, he's revered around, around the city. Um, was in the squad in the Italy squad to, yeah. for the uh, for the Euro twenty twenty win. It's a real kind of redemption arc for him, and he still has a huge error in him as most centre backs who play under Gasparini do. He, he likes he likes a centre back who's a bit mental,
0: a bit kind of on the edge. I'm just trying to but, sorry, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine Bonucci, Chiellini, Toloi in training. <laughs> Chiellini must have been shaking his head.
1: Like definitely, Toloi came on. I'm trying to think where he. He, came, he made some substitute appearances and I think he might have even come on for, I can't remember, he came, might have come on for Solo when he had the huge, that really disastrous yeah.
0: knee Oh, What happened to Solo? Is he alright now?
1: I mean, he's just come back from injury about that so, so sad. It's, it's the story of his career. So he, it's a solo, came through
0: at Atalanta. Yes. He was a Atalanta boy. They sold him on to Juventus and then they loaned
1: him back when, when Gasparini came in and he played as a left wing back and he was a majestic player that, in that first season he would like play on the left and he'd cut in on because he, he's a right footer but plays on the left and he would cut inside and curl across to the back post for the other wing back to score just incredible incredible season and then as has become a bit of a theme of his career the very next year he had a terrible knee injury ruled him out for pretty much the whole season um, and they, you know, they were, he was pining for a move back to Juventus anyway but, so they ended, they ended up taking him back off the back of a well, an injury-ravaged season, rather than the, the kind of the, how how brilliantly he'd done the year before. So it kind of ended in a bit slightly sour note, I suppose, in the fact that he wanted to leave and he hadn't really been on the pitch in the last season. But
0: he's an incredible player, Spinazzola, But I think just the injuries will always um, mm. will
1: just dog him wherever
0: wherever he goes. And another another player who got injured, Conti. Who went to Milan and did his ACL? He'd done so well um, with Atalanta. Yeah.
1: Conte, Conte's a. There's a bit of a theme of those Atalanta players, the ones who came through, of um, hitting an incredible, like, like burning incredibly brightly under Gasparini. and then they, they obviously attract a lot of attention, get a big move. So Andrea Conte, when he, when he left for Milan, he was, he was um, uh, one of Antonio Conte's choices to come in at Chelsea when, when Conte bought all those. Uh, Wing backs. he brought in uh, Marcus Alonso, um Zappa Costa, um as part of his kind of not so good second season at Chelsea. Andrea Conti was his was his number one pick, but he went to Milan instead. And as you said, terrible injury and it's just never has mm. never found his way back yeah. since. And it's a it's a bit of a spooky kind of what seems to happen with players once they leave Bergamo and leave Gasparini's
0: tutelage. Mention of Antonio Conte must prompt in a segue fashion to Gallini, who uh, became the number one. Uh, he displaced Bereisha and in turn Galini was displaced by Musso, an expensive signing from Udinese. And this chap, Christian Romero, who looks to have had a very good season at Spurs and will probably stay in London.
1: Romero is, a, if you look back at the centre-backs that Gasparini has used at Atalanta, they, um, a lot of the time they fall into a category of being fan-favourites, but ultimately are accepted for all their flaws. A bit like we are saying about Toloi. Christian Romero is the exception to that. He'd been on loan at Genoa the season before, but it was owned by Juventus. And didn't play a minute for Juventus, but they loaned him to Atalanta for a season with the the option to buy at the end of it. And he won Serie A Defender of the Year in uh, 20 2021, 20, incredible, incredible player. Um, aggressive, blood pumping, like f- loves a loves a brutal tackle. He, he's always the, he's a, almost like a slight throwback in the way he defends. Um, and to see him go in at Spurs was always going to be exciting. And then when Conte arrived, knowing that he would be playing the three at the back system as well, and allowing Romero to have the license to be. To have to continue his aggressive aggressive notions and how he wants to play, it was always going to work. And now he's just a,
0: a probably top five centre back in the Premier League, which mm. I think everyone everyone is, who is associated with Atalanta is delighted to see. Yeah, there is a kind of shared joy that Romero is doing well in that 2019-20 season where Atalanta were well, unbeaten in the pandemic era, apart from the final game against Inter. 98 league goals as you say including a 7-0 a 7-1 and a 7-2 uh Louis Muriel seems to be the top player there Mario Paschalic, who never got a look in at Chelsea Alejandro Gomes uh was up front as well um and this chap Ilisic who didn't he score that amazing goal the other year Ilisic Yeah
1: he's, he's got a bit of a highlight reel Ilisic yeah. he was the so he was the architect when they in the Champions League that season when they um uh, Atlanta couldn't play their home games at their own stadium because it wasn't UEFA didn't meet UEFA regulations so they played their home matches at san Siro, just a 40 minute like i say 40 minute train journey away and uh, they got through their, they'd lost their first three matches in the group stages been pummeled by man city uh, lost to Shakhtar and lost to dinamo zagreb and it looked like they were out in a bit of a bit of a disappointment really but they turned it around Got took seven points from the last three games and got out of the group by some Miracle. Got to play Valencia in the next round and they won 4-0 against, uh, against Valencia at San Siro. And Ilicic uh, was just at his absolute imperious best. He scored once that night and then the return fixture scored a hat-trick. And of course, that was the night that the... The pandemic really took hold. They refer to that match as of being course, the, the super of, the biological bomb. They call it like that. All the all the people from from uh, from Spain coming over, and yeah. little did we know just how infected Bergamo was at the time. And all those fans coming from Bergamo to Milan so that infected Milan it was just a. It's it's a shame that that was probably the greatest night in their history, the history of that club really, and it will forever be associated with what what happened and what came to really just yeah. destroy a lot of lives in Bergamo.
0: And it meant meant that Atalanta went on to the quarter final, which was a one game in that super week in Portugal. Do you remember that game? Was that where the idea for the book came from, when Atalanta were 1-0 up in the 89th minute against Paris Saint-Germain and then lost? (laughs) uh, Funny enough, I I was
1: already... I'd already been like interested in them for a few years before. That. I hadn't, the, book, the idea of a book hadn't come into my mind, but I'd written quite a few articles about them and i have really come to admire them. And I remember watching that match as kind of a, an interested party. And yeah, the heartbreak. The, the Aflans, Aflans were not their best that night at all. I think that the occasion and kind of the, the freezing up that can happen when they actually went ahead against the Neymar and Mbappe and Di Maria Strong PSG. I think that probably was a bit of a shock to them. I think they were probably expected to go behind and then galvanise to potentially overturn a deficit, but to actually go ahead was a huge shock. And I think they they slightly froze up a little bit. And look, they they had no right to even be there. Like, if you compare the the money that's been spent on those two respective squads and the money that
0: those two respective squads earn each yeah. month, I think I think I, I wrote something in the book a stat about Neymar earning more in a week than a lot of those players earn in a month. Like it's, it's Football. It's really. Elite football. Take a year off. Go and, go and watch other things, um, because that's what I'm doing. The uh, Atalanta in Europe, as well as PSG, knocked out in the round of 16 of the Champions League by Real Madrid in 2020-21, and then this season just gone, the Europa League quarter-finals. They were 2-0 up at Old Trafford at half-time. Did they freeze again in the second half, or did United just overpower oh. them?
1: United was still in that kind of start of the season glow the the Ronaldo when he managed to bail them out of every situation and um, yeah Atalanta always had the propensity to to blow away a team in the first half and then second half have the reverse done to them it's the nature of playing on the edge like they do Um, I don't remember too much about those matches to be honest because I don't remember I don't think I watched them but I remember following it and seeing them go ahead and still thinking there's time in this year, and yeah, and Ronaldo, as he was seemingly doing every week at that point, was bailing them out with a brace here and there. It's hard to feel disappointed. I mean, there's obviously there is disappointment, and there was disappointment in the Europa League as well because they went ahead against Leipzig. They, that team has no right, it just has no given right to be there, and it's you just got to enjoy the fact that they are playing at Old Trafford, which instead it was where when Ferguson was on in his last years, he, he inquired about bringing
0: Gasparini to, to Man United as his assistant manager. Oh, wow.
1: Little known fact,
0: yeah. Well, that fact is probably in The Working Hands of a Goddess, the Tactics, <laughs> Culture and Community of Atalanta, Bergamo, Calcio, BC, Isn't it? Uh, which is yeah. a book that comes out on July 18th, published by Pitch in paperback? Yeah, in paperback, yeah. Yep. Which leaves us about three and a half minutes to talk about your Masters of Research Journalism. Uh, congratulations on the distinction. What were the comments that your marker had for you? What did you do well?
1: <laughs> My advisor. Uh, was is a sports journalist, kind of lecturer, and a and a, a sub editor of the Guardian in his own respect. Um, Where well, we we help form the formulate this idea of writing a dissertation about holding football pundits to their own to their own kind of statements because it's it's pretty tiring as someone you know if you watch if you're watching punditry and that they ultimately the, the pundit can give their opinion with very little recourse or very little. Uh, kind of anything to back it up they can just say it and the idea is that it's taken as gospel because they're deemed an expert in their field so we kind of took that idea of what does it mean to be an expert what qualifies you how does a lived experience of being a former player how does that actually affect your ability to relay information or associate those experiences to what you see on the pitch so the idea was to kind of categorize as spend a month analyzing every halftime broadcast on on a certain broadcaster of what the pundits were saying, break them down into categories and then kind of find a way. What what do those categories mean? Are they are they trying to be antagonistic? Are they are they relating it to an anecdote from their own career? And I thought like that was quite a different approach to kind of academic journalism. And um, yeah, spending a spending a month listening to Graham Sooness is uh, is enough to kind of. Uh, to put you off watching football again. They are
0: paid extraordinary amounts of money because the market for punditry uh, over the last 10 years, certainly, it's created this kind of squad of mouths for hire. And it's interesting that I always say Chris Sutton went bankrupt. There's no way that he's not going to turn into a character in order to make some money. Sky has now turned into Pundit TV. We just said this before. We tune in and see what Roy Keane has to say. Is there any pundit that... You came out of your study with an appreciation for Oh
1: <laughs> That was a good question. I mean, you feel bad in a way criticizing until you do realise the money they make. But you do feel better because when you when you're sat in front of a camera and you're having to give your opinion, you know, like in this interview, for example, with me and you talking today, I'm sure people could go back through with a comb of things I've said and say like um oh, there's a, there's a slight gap in that. And I, I do understand how difficult it is but The problem is when it becomes repeated over and over again. I'd say Gary Neville and Carragher, when they give their opinion on what they see on the pitch, are the two are the two best. I would say they they definitely have faults and flaws, but as in actual giving their their own knowledge on what they see on the pitch. I would, I would say they are the two
0: yeah. the two best. And Jamie Carragher, spitting feathers, as he usually yes. does. <laughs> so, never yeah. forget, never forget. Got caught on camera, spitting. No. Tom Underhill, what have you got for the rest of the day? What are you doing?
1: Oh, I'm enjoying a day off before I'm back on cricket coverage tomorrow. I might have flicked through some other pitch titles that I've got, got on the
0: bookshelf today. Thank you, sir. Yes, thank you for um, making time on your day off to pop into the football library, uh, the working hands of a goddess is out on July the 18th.